Well, hello everybody. This is Mike. You probably know me from No More Room in Hell, Fresh Cuts, perhaps Burning for Springwood, perhaps you go way back with me to Evil Episodes, maybe you even heard me on Theme Warriors, or my various guest spots around the community. So, I thought maybe because this is the first episode of this new sidecast I'm doing, that I would throw out like a little pre-show segment. Truth be told, when I was putting together the idea for the show and kind of reached out to a few folks, uh, some people got back to me really quick, and this first episode kind of got scheduled and recorded before I really had a chance to flush out the other aspects or other portions of the show, if there were going to be any. So once uh, we get into the show, you know, I'll be introducing uh, the guest pretty much right away. Like there is no, uh, you know, opening segment, I guess, as they say. So, you know, in future episodes of this, will there be a opening segment recorded outside of the guest uh, spot, I am not sure. I can't say. I'm still kind of working on how I want to do the show. You know, I, I kind of always say, whenever you start a new show, uh, it's going to take a handful of episodes to really feel out the process, see what you like, what you don't like, what you want to make changes to. And sometimes they're subtle. Sometimes they're major. It just kind of depends what feels right to the podcaster themselves. So um, if you, you know, you didn't see the art on this or you accidentally thought or you know you you thought this was like another episode of fresh cuts that you pressed play on no this is a new sidecast actually that uh, it's just me as the host and every episode i'm going to be talking with a guest i i'm assuming most of the time it's gonna be someone i know from the podcasting community pretty well but i eventually i would like to expand out to you know people i know but maybe haven't done shows with or even People that I've uh, not really talked to that much at all. That maybe I just know of them through their shows. So it kind of depends how it goes. I also don't really have a set release schedule for how often I'm going to be doing this show. This is like a major sidecast kind of uh, experiment. I, I, I've been working on, not work, really working on, it's not, it's not complex, just kind of, you know, been thinking about for a while. So basically this is going to be me one-on-one with a guest going to be semi-interview format, you know, get to know the person. Most of the case, I already know them, but more so for the sake of the listeners. You know, a lot of people I'm talking to, a lot of our communities probably do have lots of crossover, but there also are people that probably don't listen to, like, both my stuff and the guest stuff, so maybe this is an opportunity for a little crossover there, but, you know, so it's going to be a little getting to know our guest, you know, when it comes to movies, their history with movies, all that kind of stuff, and then I'm having the guest pick a movie for both of us to watch, and uh, then we'll go over kind of like why they chose this movie, and when, I, when I'm sending out kind of like the, uh, the itinerary, I, I want to make it clear to the guests, like, it's not going to always be about their favorite movie or the best movie, you know, what they think the best movie is to pick. Just something, just, you know, a movie that means something to them for any particular reason. You know, you want you want it to be something that's going to generate conversation because I really want the guests to drive that part of the show. So, um, and I'm also taking the limits off. This is not going to be a horror genre exclusive show, although I will have zero issue if, like, you know, 
ten guests in a row all want to pick horror movies. No issue for me, but I want to leave it open because um, I know there's a lot of horror podcasters out there, including myself, that we do watch a lot of stuff besides horror, but because most of our shows are um, horror-centric, uh, we don't have the chance to talk a lot about other genres unless we kind of force it into our regularly scheduled programs. But anyways, this show is called Watch This Movie, Mike, because basically that's what the guest is kind of saying as they come on to the show. So, very, very simple name, you know, this is kind of just like a little passion side project for me, just something purely for fun. I want to know what they see as a special movie to them and why and all that kind of good stuff. So I guess, you know, that's it for kind of like the description of how the show is going to be. And with that said, we will get right into the first episode of Watch This Movie, Mike. Fortunate guinea pig, and it's it's funny because I I don't even want to say this is the first time I've had this guest do this before. You know, I I sent out feelers to a few people expecting it to take a little while to get things locked down, and by maybe coincidence or curse, uh, <laughs> this person reached out, responded really quick, and things kind of got uh, set up and scheduled really fast. So, uh, much thanks to that. So, with that, welcome into episode one of the show, Mr. Doug Tilly. How are you, Doug? Doing so well, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. First episode. I mean, uh, I expect this to go several hundred episodes, and when people go back to the beginning, they're going to be like, boy, Mike must have had a lot of faith in this guy, and watch as I destroy that faith over the next however many minutes we record, Mike. <laughs> well, yes, if we, if we make it to... Uh... Hundreds of episodes in the world uh, survives uh, and archives are kept. <laughs> then yes, <laughs> I would I would be overjoyed if you know the show got big enough that people actually wanted to go back through the records and say, hey, I need to know the origins of this show. But uh, you know, speaking of uh, just me knowing you, Doug, you're I would think I could name maybe one or two people that I have might have been podcasting with longer uh we've always been in each other's orbits even when not on each other's shows either guesting or co-hosting uh we've always kind of been around the same community of people as well so it it seemed natural for you to be you know one of the first guests if not the first guest but you know for for people that are even maybe new to my stuff and aren't very familiar with you or your shows you want to give kind of a like a like a historical rundown of um the many years you put in you know providing much entertainment for moviegoers and <laughs> just entertainment goers because you have a vast uh, library of shows covering many things so why don't you uh, let everyone know you know where what you got going on 
then, now, forever, what the? <laughs> you know, we didn't know how good we had it when we were starting. You know, uh, I think, I can't remember what year I started. It, it's, it's been over 12 years at this point, starting No Budget Nightmares over at Daily Grindhouse. But when at that point, the market wasn't quite as flooded with those themed shows, and it felt like you could kind of get ahead. Particularly, and when I say flooded, I actually don't mean enthusiasts like friends of ours. I actually mean like Hollywood types. I, I never really figured that... Uh, the DIY ethos of a lot of podcasting would get kind of snuffed out by people with more budget, with more resources. And now, we, you know, we, we kind of have to find our own niches. And that's kind of what I've been focusing on over the last few years. So, yeah, I started out with No Budget Nightmares, which was a podcast devoted to micro budget and DIY cinema. Uh, it's only on a hiatus at the moment, just waiting for my co-host to uh, want to continue it. But that was like my focus for a very, very long time. Uh, and in fact, it was the first podcast I ever did. If you listen to our first episode of No Budget Nightmares, you can hear a very different version of me. And it was actually the first time I had ever talked to my co-host, Mo Porn, at that time, which started a relationship that lasted till this day, where we've done audio commentaries, where we've met so many different filmmakers. It's been a real w wild ride. Uh, a few years into that, I uh, started a podcast called Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man, which is devoted to the life and career of actor Eric Roberts. Uh, and uh, after a few, I think it was something like 20 episodes of that, my co-host unfortunately had to leave uh, in order to deal with uh, some family emergencies. And I picked up a new co-host, Liam O'Donnell, and Liam and I have become so close over the last what, six, seven years since then, we were able to interview Eric Roberts in person at the Cinepocalypse Festival down in Chicago. Uh, we've, again, met so many wonderful filmmakers, wonderful people. It's really just been an incredible joy, uh, all based around actor Eric Roberts, who, even if you don't know who that is, uh, the, the concept of that show was really based around, hey, here's an actor who's done so much work that we could theoretically cover movies featuring him forever. Like, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. There'd be no limit. So while I was doing Eric Roberts, I can't remember, it might, it might have been in between the time where No Budget Nightmares and Eric Roberts at the Fucking Man started, is probably when I first uh, was aware of you, Mike. I've been on evil episodes, I can't remember the first time, again, this is a lot of history that we're talking about here, but I've also been part of the Theme Warriors podcast, which has been off and on for a very long time at this point, and, and, and in fact, the Theme Warriors podcast, in some way, which for those who haven't listened to that before, it's a podcast which has usually four hosts, and we all pick one movie based around a specific theme. And that idea of that theme, that idea of that niche, is something that I've really kind of taken and uh, molded throughout a lot of my podcasting, right? The DIY stuff, I think a lot of people have it, but I like to get very specific in regards to it, just like with the Eric Roberts show, right? Eric Roberts movies is a very specific niche. So when I started Cinema Smorgasbord, we brought the original version of Eric Roberts as the fucking man to an end, and then I launched Cinema Smorgasbord with Liam, uh, where the idea would be that every week, every Monday, we would release an episode, but there would be a variety of sub-podcasts under the name Cinema Smorgasbord. So just to make this clear, we have a chronological podcast devoted to, say, the career of Jackie Chan called We Do Our Own Stunts. So we are going chronologically through his career. We have a show called Praising Kane, which is going through the career chronologically of Carol Kane. We have a show devoted to Steve Buscemi. We have shows devoted to Dick Miller. We have a show devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky. We have a show devoted to George Kennedy. We have a lot that have started since the beginning of it. Uh, Bartell me something good about the, uh, the, the career of the great director, Paul Bartell. Some of these names are probably familiar to you, and some might not be, but that's okay. The idea is these deep, like unbelievably, ridiculously deep dives. Uh, on these figures that I really like that we can trace the histories of or sometimes just dip in. Some of them have guests. Some of them have, have uh, co-hosts with Liam and I. It's just a really 
great, diverse collection that gives us a lot of freedom. We were starting to feel a little stifled with Eric Roberts as the fucking man. Just, and also, frankly, the movies were so bad generally, like consistently, that it was sometimes a bit of a slog to go through it. We still have Eric Roberts as the fucking man redux that we do, you know, every month and a half or so. And that it's so much more fun to be able to dip into it. But the quality of what we get to watch is a little bit higher generally. And, uh, and I never lose the enthusiasm because there's always something interesting and neat uh, around the corner with it. And, of course, Mike, we have podcasted consistently uh, in between, like, a lot of those kind of my main podcasts. But uh, I'm, always, uh, I'm always game, and I was really happy to hear that you wanted me to be on the first episode of whatever this podcast is called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like you're, you're now giving um, Duncan, Duncan McLeish, a, a run for his, his money in the uh, podcast volume arms race. It's because, good I'm doing uh, I'm doing it in that area because I can't give him a run for his money in running, which he's much he's much much better. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, would you Would you say you know out of all the shows you've done, I mean, being able to meet Eric Roberts, sure. You know, based on a podcast, has to be some type of great height in 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 your podcasting career, if you want to call it a career. Um, but do you think do you think that's what people would most know you for now? Just because it seemed like they got such notoriety for that, and and I I don't know all the details around how that came together, but sure. wasn't it like something like he someone retweeted the show to him, or he retweeted a show and he noticed it, or or, or something he was like definitely that, already but... aware of the show before uh, we managed to set up the interview. But I mean, you know, he's Eric Roberts. There's probably a lot of people who are out for his attention and for yeah. the potential promotion. But what happened is that we had a relationship. Uh, Liam specifically had a relationship with the person who was putting on the Cinepocalypse Festival um, because he had done the Bruce Campbell Film Festival, and Liam had volunteered on that a few years. And so there was a relationship there, and he knew that we had this Eric Roberts podcast, and he was interested in doing a screening of The Ambulance, the film, uh, the Larry Cohen film. And they were going to bring Larry Cohen in, and it just seemed like it was this perfect fit. They could get Eric Roberts. He was uh, you know, able to come. He knew we would do this podcast that was not popular, and none, none of my podcasts have ever been particularly popular, probably because of the niche subject matter. I should have just picked one where it was like, hey, let's talk about Lucio Fulci, you know, just that sort of shit where it's just <laughs> the most popular mainstream stuff in terms of our horror. Strength the Friday the 13th. Yeah, films. exactly, right? But I just, it just, that stuff just doesn't hold a lot of interest to me, though if you want me to talk about those things on your podcast, I'll come on and do it. Um, but so he asked us to come down and I was like, Chicago, like I'd never been to Chicago before. I've only been really to some of the uh, border states for the most part. I live in Canada, uh, for those who, who don't already know that. And this was, it meant so much to be asked. It meant so much to go there. It was such a difficulty kind of getting down there. My wife and I took a train, but then it was a chance to meet my co-host for the first time. Cause we'd always done that remotely. Cause Liam was, um, uh, Philadelphia based though. He lives outside of Chicago now. And uh, then, like, I was terrified. Don't get me wrong. I've, I don't perform in front of a crowd, all right? This is not something that, that's one of the nice things about podcasting is that you can be sort of isolated. But to have to do this, not only do it in front of a crowd of people, but then to do it with Eric Roberts. <laughs> and then, not only that, I mean, this was even bigger in some ways, is after we recorded, it, it went, I thought, really well. There's a recording of it. You can hear it in our podcast feed. There's a lot of kind of uh, news stories about it. I mean, you know, low-level stuff on the AV Club and things like that. And then uh, we went for lunch. 
with Eric Roberts and Larry Cohen, the director of this stuff, and Cue the Winged Serpent, and It's Alive. I mean, uh, he's since passed on, but we went for uh, for lunch with the, the both of them, and you want to talk about just a surreal, unbelievable moment. But really, just one of those things where so much kind of wild things, so many wild things happened in such a short amount of time that, it, yeah, you're right, it became this kind of high watermark for what these kind of ridiculous podcasts that we all do can lead to, to a certain extent. Um, and so... You know, it, the, all the DNA of what Eric Roberts and the Fucking Man was exists in the podcast that we do through Cinema Smorgasbord, which again includes Eric Roberts as the Fucking Man. But it just, it, to me, it's like you can easily burn out if you're just <laughs> covering the same subject matter week after week after week. Uh, and I'm just glad that we're, you know, Liam is is one of my dearest, closest friends. I love him very much, and it's it's only with his participation that I've been able to keep all of this going. Yeah, um, I'm sure it was it was surreal. Like something like that, you know, to to particular crowds, they would look at that and say, "Oh, you know, not not a huge deal." But I think to uh, like doing podcasting, you know, an opportunity like that. I mean, I think that exceeds any expectations any of us had. At least those of us that began, you know, podcasting over a decade ago when it was really a much smaller scale. Thing, I mean, you mentioned how celebrities have almost like carved out. I would say the majority of the podcasting landscape now. Yeah. Um. It, it it's. But it's just like anything else, then, right? We're all fighting for the scraps. I mean, it's just like you know, it's funny that my first podcast that that ever was something I was kind of substantially doing was No Budget Nightmares, which is about these DIY movies. Mm-hmm. The people that were involved in that sort of art are, you know, that's like the podcasters of today, like you and I. They're all being snuffed out by the heavy hitters with all these different resources, but that doesn't mean that they have any less passion or any less interest or, in some cases, any less talent for it. I've certainly heard very professional podcasts which are not interesting, which are like even very famous people who are hosting them, and they just – A, you can tell they're not too committed to it, and B, they just don't have that much interesting to say. Uh, maybe it's because they're they're afraid of – they have a lot more to lose than somebody like me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, right. you know, I'd like to think that that we bring – and I say we, meaning you and, and myself, uh, and certainly my collaborators, that, that we bring something to the table that they can't, which is that we can just be blatantly honest about things, our, about our feelings, and also that we can go into weird areas that are not meant for the mass public. And I love that. I, 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 my podcasts are not for everyone, and I fly that flag very proudly. Right. And in like the, the point I was going to bring up about like the, the celebrities, like even way back then, I, I when you look at the, like the first few that broke in like a, like a Kevin Smith even a Rogan in the early days and maybe a Marin yeah I mean, and like, also Ricky Gervais that, I mean yeah yeah absolutely Gervais yeah e- e- even back then they were celebrities getting new but there was a very DIY aspect to how they broke in versus now when the celebrity like celebrities already kind of know podcasts if they want to get into it they start with like every bit of fancy equipment you need but I mean when Kevin Smith first started it literally sounded like he, you know, he was just on the couch with his friends yeah. talking for a while. Uh, eventually, you know, he upgraded and went on to uh, bigger production. But at the start, it he kind of felt like just one of us, just more known. So very different landscape back then. But, uh, you know, memory road is always our memory lane, I guess, is always uh, nice to go down, you know, when you're talking to people you've known for a while. But uh I don't want to bog everyone down with too much stuff that they're like, you know, Mike, we don't know any of this that you're talking about. We're young. We're 
<laughs> we don't we don't know the uh, late 2000s. Uh, like you do. So, <laughs> Your young audience is going to be particularly frustrated with our 1943 three-hour film oh, yeah. that we're about to talk about. <laughs> yes, because, and that's a good transition because, you know, Doug, I, I will say, you know, with the with the world burning around us, particular my country <laughs> right now, um, I was like, you know, Doug, maybe he'll pick a Splatterhouse movie. Maybe he'll pick a mindless action uh, a whimsical musical, perhaps, to take, you know, 90 minutes of the world away from us. But no, you chose a nearly, nearly three-hour movie that is listed as a drama romance war movie. And, you know, when when you say war movie, people are thinking, oh, you know, Saving Private Ryan, Apocalypse Now, Platoon even, perhaps. Not that kind of war movie. There's <laughs> no war combat at all in the movie. Yeah, uh, a lot less war going on. There's the backdrop of war, um, but you know, I'll I'll let you kind of give the movie an intro. Uh, so, what what movie is it, Doug, that you picked for us to talk about today? You see, Mike, you fucked up, right? Because you asked me to pick a movie that I had a particular affection for, and of course, I could pick a movie that I've talked about a thousand times on a hundred different podcasts or have ri- written about at length. But this is a po- this is a movie that I never would have gotten an opportunity, likely. To talk about on a podcast so that is what you got stuck with uh and that movie is the life and death of colonel blimp from 1943 directed by michael powell and emmerich pressburger uh who you might know as the directors of the red shoes and black narcissus and um uh, a matter of life and death uh, a film that i understand is a hard sell for a lot of people because of its length because of its content because of that title which means nothing probably to anyone uh for those who don't know <laughs> which is probably most people colonel blimp was a character that was in sort of a one-panel comic strip that appeared in British newspapers during the war, and he was this kind of sort of pompous, walrus-mustached army colonel who has all these out-of-touch feelings in regards to the war and what's going on, and very much is is about a clash between generations. And so the idea of turning that one-panel strip into a movie, you know, on the Criterion channel, they sometimes have celebrities come on and you know do little intros for the collections of movies and for Patton Oswalt he said this movie is like if you took the family circus and made a movie like the ice storm out of it it's just the the idea of taking what what you know it, it is worthwhile subject matter but making something so epic and empathetic and has so much depth and layers to it and has such an incredible i mean the the craftsmanship on this on display is also something that we we hope we get to go into a little bit but the fact is there's a lot of people who refer to this film as the british citizen kane because of its technological breakthroughs because of its the way that uh, the story is structured is very unique uh but in some ways i prefer this to citizen kane which is a movie that i absolutely adore because i get something different out of it every time i watch it and i also feel like maybe because it's the the ground isn't quite as trod upon as Citizen Kane's that I get to go in and I get to pick things out myself. My interpretation of this film has changed greatly since the first time I watched it. And uh, I don't know how much you want to go into the plot at this point, Mike, but uh, it's it's something we can only summarize with a movie this long. Yeah, and I well, and it's interesting too because it once I kind of laid out like, hey pick a movie such and such it didn't take you very long to turn no. around with this pick mm-hmm. and and I, once you uh you know told me what the movie was gonna be i looked it up and the first thing that hit me was like what out of everything doug could have picked 
where's uh, where was this it just kind of sitting in his mind because i i personally had never seen this movie before so i had no kind of frame of reference to know because you know i i, I know you have a very diverse taste in movies like I, i'm you're one of the you know one of the few people that i know that i i'm never surprised with what you pick because i, I you're not someone i can really label with a type of uh interest in only specific movies it's like you you pretty much run the gamut so i wasn't there was no surprise about it it was just like what uh, how did not only how did doug pick this but was he already thinking about this because it's you know it, it, this seems like the type of movie to in order to be a pick you'd have to like reach into a, a bag of, of <laughs> movie titles blindly and pull it out was this a movie you were like recently thinking about or was it just what I described to you as what to pick? And you were like, Hmm, I haven't been able to talk about a movie. I really like like this before. There's certainly elements of that. Uh, it's always on my mind to a certain extent. I, I consider it one of my favorite films. It's also one that I feel like hasn't been, as I said, picked over quite as much. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because of the title or because it gets lost in um, even amongst the filmography of its creators, but it's a movie that the people who love it love it dearly, and the fans of this movie. I mean, you, you, it's one of David Mamet's favorite films. It's one of Martin Scorsese's favorite films. It, I mean, you'll see Elvis Costello loves this movie. But it is a movie that has certain detractors as well, uh, and it's one that I think is very controversial in a certain way. You know, the most interesting thing about me picking this as a film is how off-model it is for my sensibilities, and I don't mean in terms of oh, I like horror or I like exploitation movies. I mean that. This is a movie about military men. This is a movie that in some ways celebrates military service. It's about war. It's about, in some ways, a celebration of war. It's about a big game hunter. All these things that I kind of despise in my regular life. So the idea that I would take so strongly to it uh, even surprises me a little bit. I had to kind of search thematically through this film to make it kind of agree with <laughs> with my kind of worldview. And in some ways, it'll never fit perfectly with that. And it probably mm-hmm. shouldn't for a film from 1943 that was made explicitly uh, during World War II. But it is a movie that I have such fond feelings about the first time I watched it. And I've watched it many times since. And it just grows and grows and grows. And it's just so... You know, what I really want to get across is that it's really entertaining. You know, that's that's the thing. Anyone who has any kind of second thoughts about watching older movies, and Citizen Kane is a great example of this. It's like, oh, Citizen Kane, number one movie <laughs> of all time, blah, 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 black and white, rosebud. I get it. I know what it's all about. And then if you actually sit down and watch it, you see that it's this really funny, really engaging, really, you know, a really unique movie that has all of these technical, like, jumps ahead, especially if you watched any movie from that time period. And I get the same thing out of The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. It does things that no other movie of that time period did, and it does things that very few movies since have done. It's hard to imagine that you watch a movie like this, and it was a major influence on Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, a very, very different kind of movie. But he, he, he cites it as a specific example of an influence. It's just a movie that I feel like has a lot of wet, uh, width and breadth to it. And it's something that I feel like people will go, if you go into it, if you take that plunge, if you're willing to devote that amount of time to it, um, you're going to find a much more engaging and exciting and interesting and unique uh, experience than you are likely to uh, expect going in. Yeah, yeah a, a, little, a little tidbit you brought up about how the title doesn't directly correlate with, you know, the 
the movie itself other than the little, the little comic strip because I did look that up because sure. I pa- I paused the movie at 30 minutes in thinking did I miss the character of Colonel Blimp somewhere because I had no reference that it was based on the little comic strip nor sure. would I think most people especially watching it now for the first time so I thought that was kind of funny because I, I I was like did I was there a nickname thrown in there in the dialogue that I missed or or something going on so I I, I did have to look it up uh and then once I figured it out I was like okay so we're much more kind of following the the story of Clyde Candy you know throughout the movie and then it, and then it started to fall into place like okay yeah just worry about him and kind of follow him. And now you mentioned like with the different characters in this movie, how they're portrayed. And yeah, there's definitely like a camaraderie and a gamesmanship between not so savory and wartime uh, characters. So I, I think sometimes, yeah, you, you're with multiple watches or even on a first watch in my case, you're kind of forced to find mates, you know, try to find something relatable in characters that you might not be the fondest of. And especially in a movie like this, because you're going to be there for a while. You're going to reserve yeah. an afternoon. And, and in fact, one, it was you know? when you're watching this for the first time, I'm speaking specifically to you, Mike, you really are kind of going through the experience to a certain extent of the audiences of the time. They're watching a movie that they know that the lead character, that the, what the movie is about, is about a character that they've only known as a um as something to be mocked, as something to be made fun of, and so the, it's like, how are you gonna? We're gonna, we're gonna this this jerk, this blowhard. We're gonna spend three hours with him, and it's like, how how can that possibly be? How can we find that interesting? And what the filmmakers decided to do, it's like, what if we imbued this cartoon with humanity? What if we made you understand why he's been twisted this way, and why do, even at the end of it, when he becomes that character that you know from this comic strip? Even then, you will have empathy for how he became the person that he is, uh, that he's been molded by propaganda. He's been molded by war. He's been molded by expectation. But he's also been molded by naivete. And again, there is, I think, a lot of reflection of that in the modern world, right, when people's approach to war mm-hmm. and people's approach to conflict. And, and you know, there's, there is one thing to really keep in mind about this film is that Winston Churchill hated this film that he did not want this movie to be made. He thought it would actually affect the morale of the troops for to hear some of the realities that are at the core of this, which is a really strange to say, because if you watch this from an outsider perspective, you could mistake this as being a very pro-military movie and one that is just, is just you know, uh, just showing uh, a very clear reality of that time period of, of the World War II. But, you know, that central message of we basically, when they go low, we can't go high, that we have to go low as well because the world is at stake. That was a very unique message at that time. That's not the sort of war propaganda that people were expecting. And it's not like, you know, great filmmakers at that time weren't making a lot of war propaganda. It was very, very common. Yeah, and I, and I think sometimes when uh, movies like this, they come out in a certain time period. And I think as years go on, people can mistake them as like merely being like a time capsule movie. Like, sure. Oh, you know, you got to relate it to the time it came out because that's the issues of the day at the time. But really, I mean, when we're talking about propaganda and manipulation, um, certain levels of the military to think, you know, anything we do is for the good the good and we're fighting the good fight regardless i mean in in our well i guess north america right to cover both our countries yeah. if you look at <laughs> you know just recent history 
Um, yeah, that way I don't have to every time my country, your country, but North America basically. Um, it, it, I mean, you could. I guess you could make the case even in the present, but go back, you know, a decade, a little over a decade, and I would say lots of that was going on as far as you know. Well, we're the good guys; they're the bad guys. Anything we do in the name of taking out the bad guys is a good thing for that very reason. And I, I think. When it comes to war movies that really want to kind of get in depth outside of just the, the battles on the field itself, sometimes while those can be technical marvels and very impressive to watch, in, in the grander scheme of things, they, they sometimes can come off as the most in, uninteresting aspects of war movies because really it's like you, you almost want to see who's moving the chess pieces, you know, as opposed to watching the game itself so I, I think in that way this this movie is pretty well crafted in that way and i and i can see maybe at the time um people thinking it, it is a uh, pro-war or just pro-military but just looking a little deeper into it under the surface yeah i mean a lot of the interactions between uh Candy and uh, I forgot the other that, that keeps on coming up through through the course of the movie. Um, one Maybe, of the other uh, characters, Teo Kretschmar Schuldar. Teo, correct. Yes. I guess I'll just call him Teo because that last name <laughs> it'll probably trip me up every time. But <laughs> you know, they're they're con- they're continued interactions and kind of like they're going back and forth at each other. It's it's kind of like a little rivalry going on, I guess you could say. I mean, and less the rivalry, just, I think, than... I mean, they're friends, which I know that it, it, a movie that is about men who are friends over 40 years shouldn't seem mm-hmm. like this revolutionary thing. But in the context of this movie, it really is, particularly because uh, Teo is German. And, you know, this is a movie that right. covers the Boer War, uh, World War One, and World War Two. So it's the, the idea of presenting a German sympathetically... A German as as someone who uh, has fought against uh, Candy in the context of the movie, but also has become one of his closest, if not his closest friend. I mean, that's another reason that uh, that that uh, people who are proponents of of war at that time period that they didn't feel very str- uh, you know very kindly towards this. The idea of showing any German in a positive light at the time was not uh, was not something that was that was well received. Yeah, and I think you see that in. In lots of war movies, where it's it it comes off very clear cut, you know, good guys versus bad guys. We're not here to tell any other story. Ah, uh, there, there there's some that do start to to blend it. I mean, I think aspects of like something like Apocalypse Now, kind sure. of the gray, the the fog of war, uh, which is good. Uh, well, there's that famous quote, but, right? That any movie, any war movie, um, any anti-war movie, I should say. Uh, never works properly because uh, when you show the excitement of war, um, it can't help but seem appealing to audiences because you can't make a war movie that shows war action without in some way trying to make it look appealing. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there are several movies um, that that I think really show those horrors properly, like something like Come and See, right? I don't think anyone's coming out of that and being like, oh, I better sign up for the military. One of the things that this movie does that uh, you already alluded to is that it doesn't show conflict for the most part the most kind of direct conflict that you see is in the duel scene one of the most famous scenes in the history of cinema in in my opinion maybe the greatest scene in all of cinematic history and that is just two people and it cuts away before the duel even happens well for the most part you see the first kind of uh, opening moves and then it just pans away this is a movie that isn't interested 
in those moments. This is a movie that main characters, almost all of them, they die off screen. You don't see those events happen. It's not as interested in those incredibly dramatic moments as it is about the beats of a person's life over 40 years. Again, it's, it's a ballsy movie in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, I, I noticed that pattern, too, in this movie. There's a lot of um, fading to black. Yeah. Like you, you get lots of setups and uh, aftermaths of events, but the movie really focuses more on the people kind of behind it and the moves being made and kind of like the the difference in philosophies or outlooks when it comes to war more than war itself. Like it's a very interesting approach, and, it, and I, I think – you know, that coupled with the running time can make it a doozy of a first watch. Sure. I can speak from personal experience. Mm-hmm. It was, it, it's, it's a big undertaking for, for just one sitting. I mean, especially now, you know, with, with, with kids and all that, I'm like, holy crap, three hours. But <laughs> I, I, I would say even if, you know, this is more, I guess, to the listeners, even if you had to break it up in like two or three sittings, if that help would help you get through it, I think it's worth, doing if you could just really focus on like an hour at a time and just really invest into just giving it the full attention because i just think the the conversations in this are are, you know very well done i I think it accomplishes a lot and just by how the characters are interacting which you really you don't don't need um all the usual stuff you get in a war movie like there's a couple scenes where you get kind of like a backfield or a battlefield aftermath in in the horizon or something so you sure. can get an idea of what's going on and if you just have any general uh I- education on world war one world war two uh you know i'm no scholar on those wars but just general education on them and you, you get an idea of the time and place but uh yeah it, conflict between those two countries, and, you know, I, I am interested to, like, to see what more Americans would think of this, just because it, it might be something they're not overly familiar with. And you just, I think if they would be doing themselves a favor to just invest in the story, invest in the characters with the song. I think it's also, it's, very, it's a very different perspective to war than you would see from uh, an American war film, for the most part. It's also... It's a very patriotic movie, but I that's an interesting word, especially in the year 2022. Patriotism, I think, has been branded so negatively, and by me. I mean, let's face it, the people who consider themselves the most patriotic tend to be just the worst of the worst human beings on this <laughs> entire planet, right? And I include that in, in my own country. I include it in your country. I mean, believe me, the goddamn morons who you know, drove their vehicles up to Ottawa. I mean, they all, with their Canadian flags, they basically, they've turned our flag into a shorthand for just, just awful, awful, ignorant people uh, filled with racism and hate. So the idea of a movie presenting patriotism as something potentially positive, to me, that's a hard sell for me, a very, very hard sell. But it is something that I only have recently kind of accepted about this movie, which is that the patriotism is more about... Uh, a level of naivete that is in some way necessary in war, which is that if you have a person who is a true believer, you need people like that in war, even if they are very distasteful for me generally or even outside of war. I find people who are very like true believers about a country. But what this movie does not shy away from, though it's in the margins, is the fact that that's naivete. When when uh, when Candy goes to combat the 
uh, German propaganda at the beginning of the movie, the things he's combating against actually happened. There were concentration camps during the Boer War. When he's trying to, uh, when he's doing World War One, he's he has this uh, line of German soldiers and he's trying to interrogate them, and all he's doing is just asking the same question again and again, while the other soldiers there roll their eyes. As soon as he leaves, we get we understand. They're going to use interrogation techniques just like the Germans did, which are going to involve mm-hmm. violence. And they're going that he believe that he believes that there's kind of this um, sanctity and respectfulness of war that didn't exist. Uh, the story that existed prior to World War II, but didn't exist in World War II. But that's not really the truth. The fact is, war is always terrible, and people are always going to go low. He just was never exposed. To it. it reminds me a lot of No Country for Old Men, right? People sometimes somehow miss the main theme of that movie, which is that a lot of people have this view that violence is this new thing, that, that, that you can um, – that you go out and you read the newspapers and you see all this violence in the world and it's like what happened to the calm, you know, uh, uh, backyard uh, neighborhoods of 1950s America? You see this all the time, especially with right-leaning people. It's like, why can't we get back to that? But the fact is, things were just as cruel and disgusting and violent in the 1950s as it was. The very final scene of No Country for Old Men makes that explicitly clear, that you can't have these rose-colored glasses about the past. But this is a movie that's all about how you could develop those rose-colored glasses while still being a decent human being and also being uh, sympathetic and empathetic, Uh, even... Uh, when you have a best friend who who recognizes the world for what it is compared to your own worldview, and also that people like that can still have value, even if t- t- they can be distasteful in some of their viewpoints, that there's still value to them as human beings. Uh, though, I mean, uh, that's something that I have a little bit more difficulty swallowing over the past, say, decade or so. It's just that things have gotten so so gross in a lot of people's worldviews uh, and so at odds with my own. But that, like I said at the beginning of this, someone who maybe isn't intimately knowledgeable about this movie or maybe just read about it might find it surprising that I, I have so much affection for it. But to me, it, it is something that has so many layers to it that uh, that I think it's really, really worthwhile revisiting. And I know it's a, a large undertaking, three hours of anyone's time. But hey, you know, it's not like there isn't a three-hour movie being regularly released released in theaters these days. Uh, I think it's a much more worthwhile use of your time than Zack Snyder's Justice League. <laughs> yeah, um, I would agree with that. I, I I don't even think I'd have much time for a 90-minute version of that. But <laughs> Speaking of 90 minutes, I guess got to bring this up simply because what you were saying earlier – well, people agreed with you that people agreed that this movie was too long. Uh, the when it was released initially in the U.S., it was cut down to 120 minutes, so uh, 90 minutes. Uh, sorry, uh, 90 minutes, like under two hours. Uh, or sorry, two hours is what I should say. 120 minutes is two hours, so cut down to two hours. So basically, 47 minutes of it removed, and that was the release wow. that was available in theaters. And even more so than that, Martin Scorsese talks about this on the Criterion version of this that. Um, that when he saw this initially, he saw it in black and white, of course, on television, in a 90-minute version. The TV version of this was cut down to 90 minutes. It's like, and, you know, very crucial scenes were taken out. In the U.S. version that was two hours long, they made the whole thing chronological. So the the, the first 15 minutes of the movie, which take place, basically, uh, it, it all leads into a flashback that goes into the entirety of Colonel Candy's life. That's been, that was entirely moved to the end of the movie, basically removing the point of the entire movie for the, to a very great extent. And uh, the scene where Candy goes to 
um, to uh, see uh, Chris Marschuldorf in the prison camp, and he just completely ignores him. That that scene is removed entirely. Like crucial, very important scenes to everything the movie is trying to say. But obviously, that wasn't a uh, a key um, a defining reason for how they they kind of repurposed a lot of this material. Yeah, and and on the theme you you brought up on the whole idea of um, patriotism, I I totally agree. It's like. I, I think it's one of those things through the years. I, I everyone probably goes through like a phase of feeling. You know, you, you might come off feeling like a patriotic person, but then you see how like it gets co-opted and eventually turned into a pretty ugly thing. And it's like, okay, where does that leave me with patriotism? Do I even want any of that attached to myself? And it, it, things got pretty ugly <laughs> very recently. I mean, not. Not that there weren't aspects of that way before, but I, I feel like it's it's been amped up so much lately. The the idea of what makes you uh, a patriot or exuding patriotism, right? It, it seems like it became a very narrow absolutely um, idea. Yeah, yeah. The people, some people believe that you cannot work progressive values into patriotism. That you can't love your country while still acknowledging it's a history of horrific acts. That you can hope for it, for it that it can be better. And I can see why someone would be very cynical about that. I'm very cynical about it myself in a lot of different ways. And certainly that cynicism has been rewarded again and again over the past decade. There's very good reason to be cynical about it, but there are good things and good people. And we all kind of acknowledge that as well, even if that circle seems to be very small sometimes, but the country that can produce a Donald Trump and his, you know, soulless followers can still also produce quality, kind, empathetic, good people it's just that sometimes when you're when you're knee deep on social media all you get to see are the worst of the worst and it does kind of color your view a little bit i try to stay optimistic it's hard sometimes i try to stay positive but i also you know lean very heavily into my own progressive left-leaning values it's very i mean this is a very political movie i consider myself a very political person but people who consider them consider themselves apolitical that is a political position, right? That is a decision that you're making is to stay out of it. That is as political as me declaring myself a leftist, you know? To me, it's just, it, it, yeah. you're not sitting things out. You, you're participating by your very inaction. Yeah, and I think the point you also brought up about um, the whole violence things, the violence as if it's it's perceived as something new and why can't we just go back to the days where it was less violent. But then if you actually look into it, it's like, no, we just have a better delivery system now of just putting all the violence on display. Right. I mean, yes, there's plenty of awful violence out there. I don't think anyone would ever deny that, but it's also now uses advertisement and used to manipulate. Um, And it's just a 24 seven thing that it, that it's being viewed it's not that a lot of this stuff wasn't happening back in the quote-unquote good old days um and i i think a movie like this kind of touches on all those things lightly uh there's a lot of places to go with with the themes of this movie and the metaphors and just i guess allegories i think that's why it works so well and why it's worth just being in, invested in the writing because i think it touches on a lot as we kind of see the character through you know, different points in his life and what he's kind of figuring out as he goes. And at the end, I, I thought that was kind of a nice touch at the end where it's like, 
okay, now I'm the comic strip guy you, you know, you know and love. Yeah. And I, I, also, I was kind of also, wondering I've, about I've that. I've come because... to this point because of a promise I made to someone I loved, right? That I've come to this point, I promise not to change. I promise to stay the same. And, um, you know, there's a movie that I know some people find very controversial, which is called Inherit the Wind, based on the play. But there's a moment in that where you have this very kind of stubborn, bigoted character, and you have the more progressive, you know, uh, um, character who is, who is kind of our, our main uh, protagonist in the film. And they're having this conversation, and one of them, you know, the, the, the conservative guy says, like, when we used to be so close, when did, you, when did you go so far away from me? When did you travel so far from those ideals? And the other character says that, you know, that movement is relative and that sometimes you can move by standing still, by not moving forward, by not progressing. You're the one who gets left behind. And that's, I think, is something that's really core to the character of Candy in this film. He's not a bad person. He just doesn't see the full picture, even when it's presented in his face. He's been shielded from it to a certain extent. And it was a necessity to shield him from it, because if he was shown the reality, how how could he be? a lifelong military man? How could he devote his life in the way that he's devoted it? One of the things that it's a very uncomfortable truth is that World War II is considered the good war, but it's just as brutal and, and, and revolting in a lot of ways as the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was just put in color in front of people's faces. If the reality of World War II was shown to people, they'd probably be just as disgusted by it. So it's, you know, and, and I'm not saying that, uh, that there's parallels directly between the two. Obviously, the motivations between the, the two are very different, and that's something that this movie kind of... Um, tangles with as well the idea that world war ii like literally humanity as a whole was what was at stake that that the 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 future of not just the united states not just uh britain but the entire world was really you know it was on the brink and it really was necessary for people to have to go in full force with it to a certain extent and even though i have a lot of difficulties with that war and particularly at the end of that war um it is something that that i think is a lot more complex than some people and those people usually who would would call themselves patriots are, are willing to tangle with yeah and i think that's an interesting point too because i know you know i don't know how people talk about the, those wars um up in canada but here it's it's very common for people to refer to like world war ii as the good war and then in vietnam as the bad war or even like vietnam era like any war since you know oh those are the bad ones because of this that and that and world war ii is kind of romanticized you know just for various reasons and you know and i i don't want to come off like saying like well every aspect of it was bad intention or anything like that i mean there were some obviously bad things that were being fought against, but war is still war, right? I, I don't think good intention or not. Uh, I don't think that uh, any, all hands are clean in a war. On yeah, either exactly. Side. I mean, and another thing is that, that it's important to understand that soldiers are victims, you know, that they are victims of manipulation, that they're victims of being told to do things and told that that they that they have no option but to do those things. Um, and, you know, we can talk about there's a lot of complexity in regards to that. But the that, that complexity is kind of boiled down a little bit in the life and death of Colonel Blimp. But when, you know, when the soldiers in Vietnam came home and were spit upon, I don't agree with that either. A lot of them had no choice but to go to Vietnam. I mean, they were drafted, for fuck's sake. That, you know, and while at the same time, I find a lot of the actions in those wars absolutely despicable. And I question myself. It's like if I was in those situations, what would I do? Would I be able to abstain? Would I say no to someone whose response to it might be to kill me 
for saying no. You know, I mean, this it's something that we've, we we have to tangle with a lot recently in regards to the actions of the, the police, uh, particularly in the United States, but also in Canada, certainly as well. In fact, I shouldn't downplay that it happens in Canada as well. Certainly racism and bigotry is as much a part of law enforcement in Canada as it is in the U.S., but there's just been so many kind of public examples of it lately. I don't have the sympathy for police that I have for the military. I don't have it at all. They're volunteers. They're people who have devoted their life to reinforcing bigotry and reinforcing these kind of uh, um, gulfs between you and I and what they claim to be, right? And they do not uphold pe- I Sorry, I shouldn't go on to a rant because that's not really directly connected to what I'm, I'm trying to say. It's just that I, I wanted to make it clear that when it comes to, and, and I also want to make it clear, I'm not talking about all people in the military. I'm talking about soldiers. <laughs> there are people who are involved in the military that I have absolutely nothing but disgust and disdain for. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think my first real exposure to kind of like fog of war stuff or just manipulation of soldiers at that level was uh it might have given i think it was as far back as like uh high school history class when we watched the the films when they were doing the atom bomb tests and they had soldiers out on the boat by that island i I can't remember it was called bikini island or what it was but they basically had soldiers out there to test the effects of like radiation sure <laughs> from adam and you know the soldiers had no idea what was going on they were probably to say hey you get to see this cool show of these huge bombs going off in the ocean don't worry it'll be okay but then of course you see everyone doing like the little radiation meter tests on them and in full out like you know biohazard suits and everything and right then and there it's like okay like there's obviously levels to the military and um there's uh less care the lower you get down on the hierarchy you know so yeah i mean that was like a big pivotal point in 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 my learning of just like yeah okay i i I see i see i see how this this i mean that's it for some people soldiers are just are just numbers on a chart right i mean that's all it is and there's no and that's another thing this movie provides right it's just what if you feel imbued this number this person with so much humanity um, and so much kind of history and so much uh, 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 content to his life, I should say, 40 years. And you don't get to see everything, but you get to see enough to know that this is somebody that you might even be able to get along with, even if their worldview is so different. I think that's helped a lot by the performances, by the way. I think that the three core performances, Roger Livesey, Deborah Kerr, and Anton Walbrook in this, are three of the finest performances I've ever seen. And particularly considering that he basically goes from being a young man to an old pot-bellied bald man in this, it's absolutely astounding in terms of, of what they're able to bring to life here. Yeah, and I think I think it may help the movie, actually, that you know, it's not about, you know, big, huge, sprawling battlefield scenes, really. It's it's, it's just more about uh, some of the people themselves and just kind of the manipulation they go through. Or, you know, they have a certain POV that you kind of see being molded for them, you know, outside of their own uh, awareness and how... You know, if you have a like, I think you meant you used the term earlier, true believer. Like, if you if you have that true believer that that just believes that, well, it's good because we're the ones doing it, right? Or if we resort to this, yeah, the other character, we we might be going low too, but it's in the name of good, so it, it's not the same. When really, you know, it is the same. I mean, all things considered. 
Oh. What did you think the of the usual me? kind of conversations you have on your podcast, I should say, uh, Mike? I, I mean, I, I want to make sure we don't get into the weeds too much because at the core of this movie is a love story, and not just a love story between uh, Colonel Candy and uh, the women in his life, I should say, or at least the woman that got away and the one that he married, but also a love story between two men. I mean, it's about a friendship that lasts through the ages, all through some very difficult circumstances, and it's a movie that is um, unafraid to look at some difficult topics, but at its core, it's meant to be extremely entertaining. There's very, very funny moments in it. I particularly think the moment where they're in the restaurant and they're playing the uh, the waltz again and again just to make that one German uh, soldier angry. I think it's hilarious. And the duel scene, I mean, I don't want to keep going back to it, but there's a reason that many cite that as such an incredible scene in it in this film. It's all about this lead up to the duel, all the different instructions. You have these two characters who have never met each other that are arguing over something that they don't really fully understand. You have all of this prep, all of this kind of gallantry and pomp and circumstance. And then finally, you get to the actual duel where they both have their swords up. They start to they start to fight and it just pans away and you only ever see the aftermath. And that aftermath leads to an incredible friendship between these two characters that lasts for 40 years. I mean, it's it is not the way that a movie would uh, would normally handle this sort of material. Yeah, it's funny because you you beat me to the <laughs> to the love and interest question like right when I was about to ask it um, because he, there is a love interest in this movie, but I still feel like the movie's strength is on the friendship uh, of Theo and Clive, right? It, because they're the two constant uh, or the consistent uh, characters in this movie that all throughout the years they maintain that friendship despite having different outlooks. But there's like you said, there's many uh, comical moments between them to show that real strong bond between two people. And I, I think that's another strength of the movies. I think they find a way to maintain that friendship despite like the situations they're put in. You have Deborah Kerr playing three different characters in the film as well. And I mean, and three different, very, very different characters, even though their whole identity is based on looking somewhat the same. But I think in some ways you can make a movie about Teo's side of this entire, you know, his life history and have it be just as interesting and just as engaging. But I just love that he returns back into Clive Candy's um, life throughout it, like in just little bits and pieces, sometimes a decade in between, I think at the end, 20 years in between the times that they saw each other. But he's changed so much over that, right? In some ways, you start to turn on him a little because you see him be so cynical about Candy's worldview. You know, this is after World War One, where he's a prisoner of war. He's being returned to Germany. And he's like, you know, we've been destroyed. We've been emasculated. What are we going to do? And, you know, all these British uh, uh, military men are like, oh, it's all good fun. It's all good sport. You know, you'll get back on your feet again, that sort of thing, which is just so unrealistic to the experience that these people have just gone, this trauma that they've just experienced. And then... Uh, and you see the anger in that character at that point, but he softens so much later, not that he changes his worldview, but he's just lost so much. He loses his wife, and then he loses his two children. His two children are not dead. He lost them to Nazism, right, that they were Hitler Youth, and that they eventually turned on him because he didn't believe what they believed. Uh, it's it's sympathetic without, I think, going cartoonish, which is an ironic thing to say about a, a movie that's literally based on a cartoon. Michael, I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> My mute button was uh, 
was making me a victim. I was just saying, yeah, that was that was well put, and I that that would be, I I do like that idea of like almost redoing the movie from Theo's uh, perspective <laughs> because I I think it, it'd be good to see like what his actual POV is on you know their interactions in Germany and uh, and all that. Uh, man, now you got me all just thinking about what, what that movie would be. <laughs> the thing is, that would be a much more brutal film, right? Because he wasn't he wasn't shielded from the realities of the mm-hmm. war in the way that that Kennedy was. So you know, he gets to experience it all and be hardened by that in a way that a regular soldier in all wars would be. You know, one of the things I always think about is how much trauma soldiers in World War II experience came back to the U.S. And then, you know, we, we talk all, a lot about the trauma after Vietnam and, and we think about all the different movies about shell-shocked Vietnam vets and their reactions to the world and them losing their shit. Well, it's not like people in World War II didn't see things just as disturbing as what – but they because they there was a celebration of them that maybe that eased some people into it. But when I think about all the domestic abuse in the 1950s, when I think about all the uh, incidents that you just never hear about – this was all a reality of of mental illness that was either not understood or ignored entirely throughout the 1950s that uh that i feel like has been completely kind of of paved over in terms of of the in, te- in in terms of instead focusing on the you know uh 2.5 children husband and wife picket fence type life you know a blue velvet type view of america Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, that's that's kind of interesting because when you think of the end of World War Two, at least from the like the American POV, you think of like all the the still photos, photography and pictures of the celebrations, like soldiers in the street hugging women and you know, or and and that's kind of like what you think of the outcome. Uh, we saved the world, and now um, we will come home and be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, and and that's about the extent of post World War II America. And really, uh, I don't think a lot of the the darker aspects are examined in our at least not in like you know a remedial education. I'm I'm sure you know there's higher education specifically you can learn about it, but it's it's a big contrast with vietnam where it seems maybe because vietnam itself was you know on tv on everyone's screen so it was i mean it makes a big difference palatable exactly. you know yeah 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 i mean look the whitewashing of american history has been in the news a lot lately for a lot of good reasons um and and that's just going to continue to happen i mean one of the the tenets of of the right-leaning political figures is to ignore that darkness, right? To, to, ignore, to ignore the actions that the country has, has has participated in because it allows them to live this life with blinders in a very similar way to Colonel Candy in this, right? Where you can you can see your country as, as the greatness that you... You can see it as unblemished because you never have to think about those blemishes, that you never have to be taught those blemishes, and you have to make sure that other people don't see them as well. It's kind of this shared... Um, psychosis to a certain extent that they're forcing people to participate in yeah and then it becomes it's much easier to reject it like if you get a peek like no that can't be true because everything i've learned up to this point and that kind of thing but 
Yeah, that's, that's, especially when it, when it's formed when you're like a teenager, right? Or, or or even before that, you know, if you're told something, think about how much harder it is to break out of those belief systems. I mean, I mean, that even includes myself. My father was a police officer. My grandfather was a police officer. My dislike and distrust of law enforcement it it, it isn't because I hated my father. It's not because I thought he was this terrible person. But I recognize now that he participated in a system that is a very unjust system. And when he was a police officer, they didn't even carry a gun, certainly very far removed from the police of today. But uh, he, he actually retired right at the time when that changed back in Newfoundland, where I grew up. But I mean, at the, it, it, it's breaking out of these notions that have been drilled into you again and again. That's a really, really difficult thing. It is actually one of the really positive things, as well as negative things about the age of social media, is that you can create this echo chamber for yourself that you never have to think outside of it. And I'm not saying that you need to give time to people with these horrific opinions, but I do think that you need to spend a lot more time interrogating yourself, thinking, why do you think these things? What, where do these beliefs come from? And who benefits from you having these beliefs? I mean, that's a good, uh, that's a good lesson to send the listeners home with. Be willing to interrogate yourself. <laughs> if, you, if you learn anything from this movie... Uh, you should be open and willing to interrogate yourself for your beliefs, you know. Uh, but I think that is the correct message. I mean, every everybody's personal beliefs should be challenged at some point in life, you know, whether to, you know, diversify them or in some cases maybe reinforce them. But I, I don't think uh, challenging your own beliefs is a bad thing, um, you know, every so often. And uh, I think there's, I think this this movie doesn't get heavily into challenging all beliefs but it kind of gives us a a pov of probably why it should be why beliefs should be challenged because we can see how uh if you manipulate someone for the quote-unquote ultimate good uh bad things can happen you know good people can do bad things under uh, a mask of of something else like you know, especially when it comes to war, yeah. or and also when you program someone in a certain way, that that can easily blow up in your face because it's a lot easier to program someone to than to deprogram them. Yeah, yeah, that is true. I mean, we're another art imitating life because yeah. uh, <laughs> we're kind of going through that right now, big time. <laughs> well, yeah, the life and death of Colonel Blimp. It's it's definitely an epic movie to undertake. Like I said, I, I think it, I, I think it's one, and I, I know because of the running time, people are going to be like, "Are you crazy?" Multiple watches, but I, I, I think that's this movie is one to make the case that you know, on a first watch, it's it's a lot, uh, especially just the format of it, how 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 events unfold in this, you know, but I think like on a second or third watch and you really start to take in what you're seeing, you know, go read up, you know, on um, critical analysis and reaction to it. And I think it opens up. <laughs> I don't know layers. about this, Mike, you're making it sound like work as opposed to just a very entertaining, fun movie in a lot of ways. But I mean, you're, you're still right. I mean, I was reading a lot of the essays. There's a wonderful essay with the criterion version that you can actually read for free right now, right? If you want to get a sense of, of maybe some of those thematic elements. But I don't think it's a necessity. I think you, everyone listening, 
if you don't already have a Criterion Channel uh, uh, subscription, if you if that is available to you, you should get it anyway because it is a great, great value. And if you do, you can go watch it right now, and then you can watch it with the commentary if you choose to. All right, it, it looks beautiful, and in fact, I think it's one of the most beautiful films ever made. Jack Cardiff uh, did the cinematography, uh, one of the the you know most beloved cinematographers of all time. The colors are absolutely unbelievable. Beautiful Technicolor. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and it's been restored to such an amazing extent. There's uh, for those again, the the Criterion Collection has a featurette on the restoration and is absolutely unbelievable what has been done to bring this to uh, its its current glory. It's just a movie that deserves your attention and it, it and when you're watching it, even though you have to ease in a little bit, by the time that you reach, I'd say that 20 minute, half hour mark, it will command that attention and I think it's something that is very, very, very worthwhile. Yeah, and for those interested, uh, it is also currently streaming on HBO Max. That's how I watched yes. it. So... I know HBO, you know, HBO tends to be, oh yeah, okay, yeah, for the U.S. uh, (laughs) viewers out there. HBO tends to be one of the ones that a lot of people have, so at least there's that going. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, look, there's lots of ways to see it, and of course you can always purchase the Criterion Blu-ray for it as well, still out there. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, So I I, I guess... um, to kind of wrap things up, I think we kind of hit a good like hour or so on on the episode. I was trying to think of a way like how can we how can we end it? I know I initially I think I brought one one idea up to you, but I'm kind of uh, putting a pin in that in that idea for now. So just give me a give me a movie for someone that watches this one and likes it a lot. Give me something that you would pair this with. Hmm. It's difficult, certainly. In, in some ways, this is a movie that is unlike any other. I mean, I might say something like Citizen Kane, but talk about one of the more cliched answers to give. Really, it's best paired with another uh, Michael Powell, Emmerich Pressburger film. So something like The Red Shoes, something like A Matter of Life and Death, something like Black Narcissus. So I think in this particular case, I'm going to recommend, particularly because we haven't focused on the romantic element of this, and this is a very romantic movie in a lot of different ways, that uh, people uh, pair it with A Matter of Life and Death, a.k.a. Stairway to Heaven, uh, a film that I once showed to my mother just a few years ago, thinking, you know, she was visiting from Newfoundland. Let's watch a nice you know, kind of old-timey movie together, one that I already had a lot of affection and love for, and she absolutely was bored to tears by it. This movie that is so <laughs> incredibly beloved. So I mean, I want to make it clear that my opinions, I understand, are not shared by everyone. But um, if you have difficulty with some of the 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 layers of the life and death of Colonel Blimp, particularly because of uh, the fact that it's, it's dealing with so much um, parallel subject matter... I find that maybe you might be eased into it with a matter of life. Uh, life. Oh, sorry, I might have already confused the names. If you have difficulty with the life and death of Colonel Blimp, a matter of life and death, I think is a little bit more straightforward, but no less entertaining. Cool. Yeah. Also, yeah. also has a, a leading performance by Roger Livesey, who is the lead here. So there's also crossover there that makes it a little bit easier to move from one to the other. There you go. We we have half a theme warriors episode planned out. <laughs> All right, Doug. Well, I'm I'm imagining after this episode, listeners are like, you know, um, I didn't know who that Doug Tilly guy was, but I I like the cut of his jib. I need to know what I can listen to him to from him immediately. And uh, this is the part where you're going to tell them right now where they can go and find more Doug Tilly. So why don't you uh, let us all know? 
Well, thankfully, I've given the the, the kind of uh, summary version of it already. But my main podcast, Cinema Smorgasbord, it comes out every Monday. Uh, it is a collection of themed podcasts devoted to different actors and directors. That includes the podcast Wild in the Streets, devo- devoted to Euro crime films. What happened? Whatever happened to? Uh, sorry, just one second here. <laughs> whatever happened to Vic Diaz about the Filipino actor Vic Diaz? We do our own stunts devoted to the career of Jackie Chan, praising Kane, devoted to the life and career of Carol Kane, Jodorowsky about Alejandro Jodorowsky. How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, devoted to the work of Steve Buscemi. George Kennedy is my co-pilot. Forgotten Gems, about uh, forgotten uh, art house movies. The films of John Singleton, which cover the entire career of John Singleton. Eric Roberts is the fucking man redux, uh, which is about the life and work of actor Eric Roberts. Cinema Fantastica, about uh, different uh, fantastic film festivals around the world. And Bartell Me Something Good, about Paul Bartell. We're always adding new ones. Sometimes some of them go on vacation for a little while. Uh, but if you like any of those themes, or even if you don't, if you just want to learn more about the characters that they're center you can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com or on twitter at cinemasmorg or you can follow me on twitter at doug underscore chili that's t-i-l-l-e-y are you sure that's it doug no more <laughs> hey it's just one podcast it just takes a while to explain <laughs> it's a smorgasbord of content that's it <laughs> all right well doug i gotta say it's 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 always fun going on a decade now um like i said been on lots of shows of mine uh, through the years, either as a host or a guest, and it's always good to catch up with you. Uh, yeah, so I hope everyone enjoyed the first episode of the show, which um, I'm still uh, working on the format. I, I think things went pretty well uh, in this first episode, but uh, you know, as I like to do, I, I kind of play with the format for the first handful of episodes just to settle into something nice, but Doug, great having you on, man. Uh, maybe I'll have you come uh, back sometime. I got I got lots of favorite movies that are going to be off putting and uh, <laughs> <laughs> controversial, so we can always we can always reconnect at a later date. <laughs>